1: and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I am your host, faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless, relentless host, Sourdough, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. How's everybody doing out there? Man, I hope you're doing great. We have a show for you today, VIP in the house, Badir McCleary. And this is a Big get, and a lot of exciting stuff to tell you about, Badir, and what we're doing together. So hold on for that. Before we get into this, I want to thank you for tuning in. We do this for you. It's all about you. If it wasn't for you, I'd just be talking into a microphone. That's not very fun. And yeah, so be sure to check out our website. As I always say, we got good, healthy stuff for you there. Organic, free-range, gluten-free, healthy stuff about artists and art, so go check out all the goodness there waiting for you at notrealart.com. We're always you know, posting and elevating and celebrating uh, amazing artists and their work. Thank you for tuning in. Of course, as always, please be sure to like, share, and comment on this episode. Your feedback and engagement helps make the algorithm gods happy and helps us, so thanks for that. Okay today, VIP Badir McCleary is in the house. And I just tell you what, Badir has been a friend and a colleague now for a few years here in LA. Just love this guy. His energy is amazing. And he's so wicked smart and so talented. And we're just honored to be associated with Badir. In fact, Badir is going to be collaborating with us in a more direct way. Moving forward, he's going to be producing what we're calling video stories for us that will debut on the blog and uh, on our YouTube channel. And Padir is going to take on topics that are near and dear to his heart, and he's going to be creating video stories about these topics. And we're going to drop at least the series that he's going to be doing for us first out of the gate, which is all about public art. And you're going to hear about all this in a minute, but uh, we're going to start dropping these episodes in July. And we're going to drop a new one every two weeks. And so stay tuned for Badir's take on public art and its role and its importance, its value, what it is, what it isn't. But let me tell you a little bit about Badir because Badir McCleary is an independent art curator and consultant, arts writer, and street photographer based here in LA. He holds a master's in arts in Arts, Business, and Contemporary Art from Sotheby's Institute of Art, where he focused on creating art markets. He also has an undergraduate degree in internet computing from Cabrini University, focusing on e-commerce and digital trends. He brings to the art world over 15 years of tech experience working for the Department of Defense as a web developer and project manager. My old job, ha ha. In 2015, he co-founded Gallery 38 a LA based contemporary art gallery project that produced exhibitions and provide curatorial consultant services and opportunities for emerging and established artists of color. He has helped contribute to several public projects globally, helping artists transform communities through visual aesthetics. He created the gallery 38 mural program in West Adams, which allowed artists in a public art venue to explore public aesthetics and extend their practice into the community. He recently covered the 2020 protests in L.A. and produced the publication, This Is Not a Riot, highlighting the images and stories of the demonstrations. He was exhibitions director at ArtShare L.A., uh, where he worked on art and educational programming, as well as working with over 60 artists, illustrators, and designers. With uh, information research, education, documentation, he's creating avenues for extending learning for artists and administrators of color through programs and workshops with partners. He has like us, I guess. Yeah. He served on juries for art residencies and awards and assists in facilitating primary and secondary market art acquisitions and sales for beginning and seasoned collectors. Uh, Badir is also one of the judges for our Not Real Art grant. He's been a judge for us the last two grants, I guess, the last couple of years. So he enjoys working with artists. That's his passion. He considers them crucial to informing his professional practice. Alongside his curatorial endeavors, he enjoys contemporary culture, covering the lives of artists and the exhibitions in the cities he travels. Currently, he is in production on a documentary film that details the trials and tribulations of working artists in L.A. His recent curatorial projects include Metropolis, a snapshot of art making in Los Angeles at Bruce Lurie Gallery and Product of Empire at ArtShare L.A. in 2022. His goal is to educate artists and patrons on a growing cultural marketplace and introduce underrepresented neighborhoods of fine art program. You got to check this guy out. Go to artabovereality.com, artabovereality.com to really see what Badir is doing and, and everything he's about. But I tell you what, I'm just so grateful now that he's part of the Not Real Art family, Not Real Art team, and is going to be producing these amazing video stories for us. And, you know, what can I say? I have the best job in the world that I get to, uh, you know, work with and be friends with and colleagues with people like Badir. So, without further ado, let's get into this episode. Enough of me, enough of me rambling on. I want to get into this wonderful, energetic conversation I had with Badir and his upcoming public art series for notrealart.com that I know you're going to love. So, without further ado, Ladies and gentlemen, here is the one and only Badir McCleary. Badir
0: McCleary, welcome to Not Real Art. Oh, man, thank you for having me. It's always just an honor working with you guys, man, and you especially, brother. I I mean, you bring light into my life every time I see you smiling around me, brother. So I'm feeling great. Well, man, we get the energy we give and uh, you're always
1: smiling. So, you know, we're <laughs> <That's it. laughs> you got it. And, you know, I got to say, man, I you know, big confession here. I mean, I've been wanting to have you on the show for a very, very long time. And, you know, you and I, we've been friends now for a minute, but you've been so supportive of everything we do, whether oh, it's yeah. our grant artist grant our annual artist grant of which you have been a, a judge i think twice now yeah you've always been hugely supportive of any uh, pop-up or installation that we do whether it's a designer con you have come to our shows i mean you've just always been sending love and positive energy to what we do because i think you know we share common values right like art Our love for art and artists sort of animates us and gives us a reason to live, (laughs) I think, right? It's
0: it's our passion. Big, big facts. It's so beautiful when I get a chance to just link with you and the team. And it's always love. Like you said, it's always a reciprocity with the energy. And I just enjoy that. You come in, we're always smiling. We see great works, great ideas are always shared, and always, you know, just a good word of advice, you No, know, I'm always learning something. I pride myself on being that type of person. It's just, you know, always being able to listen. Someone always has something to teach you.
1: Speaking yeah. of teaching, brother, I mean, you know, you're always, you know, dropping the wisdoms and the knowledge. I mean, you know, I don't want to overlook the fact that I think it's pretty clear you were a crowd favorite at our Smart Talks event last fall. You know, we were producing some educational talks there at the helms bakery center in culver city california and cool. you were one of the speakers on our panels and i i think it's safe to say you were a crowd favorite because uh you know you're always so eloquent and articulate and you you know what you bring is is always wrapped you know in a spirit of generosity and compassion and patience right because a lot of these topics you know i think the topic we were talking about you know was like this suddenly now the art world has discovered you know african-american artists like there's something new you know or whatever and you know we were taking on this topic and you were just educating us and teaching us and you know some of these tougher subjects and or 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 delicate sensitive subjects that you know maybe people don't quite know how to discuss or you know and and so anyway so you were bringing it that day man and that was a gift thank you for that
0: oh man i loved being a part of that and one thing that was cool about that and. I like when I do panels, you know, I have a tech background along with my art background. So I look at the crowd as users, you know, being an admin and a developer. It's like, what information could I provide to the user or the art lover to make them understand where they're at in the process? So if you're, you know putting together a new TV or a new computer, you need to know, hey, you are here. These are the tools I need. This is what I need to use to complete this part of the task. So when I like to break that type of stuff down, it's with the intent of informing, you know, so that someone can ask questions because I'm sure many people run into the situations that we talk about and that we're going to talk about, you know, in this talk and in future talk. And to have them prepared is the best thing I could do as a curator or a consultant, because then and also it's a little, you know, bit of marketing for me because it keeps them, it keeps me in their minds. Right. It's like, oh, that's what I was talking about. Or this is something that I saw from the not real art panel. And that's always real good when you can have someone leave with something that they can you know, chew on, you know, for lack of a better word. And I just enjoy the teaching. You know, maybe I should have been a teacher in in my life. But, you know, I think that's also the job of a good curator, too.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's, yeah, for sure. And, you know, and I think there's no doubt you are a teacher. You may not be uh, on payroll at UCLA yet. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you, you're you a young man. You have your future. Your future is bright. I got my time. <laughs> <laughs> well, man, I mean, you know, we have an agenda today. I mean, you know, we want to talk about the exciting work you're doing. You know, you and I have partnered up in a new way to produce some amazing video content, video stories that we're going to be debuting on the Not Real Art blog and on the Not Real Art YouTube channel. Yes. And, you know, and so there's a lot of richness, a lot of goodness that you're doing for us right now. And that we're going to be bringing to the world on our platform. And so we're going to get into that in a minute because oh, I really yeah. want to shine a light uh, because you were telling me what you were telling me the other day, man, was just, you know, putting a, a huge smile on my face because, you know, it's just as no surprise, so smart and so thoughtful and so rich. And, you know, and I just Thank know you. our audience is going to love it, you know, so we want to prime the pump. We want to get them excited oh, yeah. about what's coming. So we'll get into that in a oh, minute. Yeah. But Boy, exactly, exactly. But, you know, before, you know, we do, you know, I want to set the stage a little bit, right? Because, you know, we're all on our journeys. You know, everybody's journey is unique. You know, we have to look at each other with compassion and empathy and respect because yes, you just sir. never know what people's stories are where they come from and the in the in the the demons they're fighting or the or or whatever it is right and so you know we find you know healing and joy and you know in certain things obviously I think you and I share the 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 joy of art and we find healing in art yes. and what have you but we've all been on a journey to get us here you know mm-hmm. I turned 53 the other day now my journey's starting to get so long I barely remember half of it but you know what I mean like I'm just saying I want I think it'd be really good to start by talking about your journey, man, because, you know, yeah. you and I just linked up, you know, a few years ago through our mutual colleague, dear friend, man one. But as I understand it, brother, you hail from Philly. You know, you, you West you're Philly, born and raised. You're born and raised, <laughs> it's a city of love, but you have this tech background, but then you also found, you know, real passion, expertise and in love for art. And so take us back, man. I mean, take us back to the very beginning and you know, spend a few minutes here educating us uh, around your journey and, and how you got to where you are today and and how you fell in love with art and what that meant for you.
0: Yes, sir. So yeah, it was like I said, I was born in Philly, West Philadelphia, born and raised. I grew up just around everything art. I mean, Philadelphia is like the mural capital of the world. We have tons of graph all over the place, including the first graffiti artist, Cornbread the legend, who's a homie of mine, and I've known him for years. But just growing up, I'd spent a lot of time at the museum from school trips, being on punishment, <laughs> going down, it was like the only place I could go. But I, one of the biggest memories I remember of a museum was the Dali exhibition at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And I only remember this because they had the big mustache you know, across the facade of the museum. And I thought it was really interesting. I was like, who's this dude? You know what I mean? And I was at that point in life where I thought, you know, the only way you can get into a museum was you had to be good during your life and you had to die. And then someone had to champion champion you. It wasn't until I started to really understand contemporary art that I realized you could have a living career you know, because I was steeped in the tech world. I, you know, one of the things I did in high school was I was really good at coding. I was really good at taking things apart and putting them back together. My mom hated and loved me for it. You know, there'd be a TV. I was, you know, taking two VCRs together and dubbing tapes and doing all this type of stuff. So I had that very intrigued background of, I need to find out what's what. And then, you know, that, messing up everything turned into my mom calling me to fix things now. So hey, I need to get this and I need to get that. So yeah, it boomeranged on me big time. So I think that gave me the confidence that I could get into something and problem solve. And I think that's where my creativity in tech and also my problem solving in art comes from. So after college I moved to San Antonio and worked for the Department of Defense. So I was a coder of San Antonio out to San Diego. That's what brought me to California for about seven to eight years. And I loved it. I mean, it's coding, building new applications and things like that, but it started to get stale. And one day on base at work, I seen one of my friends and this guy, he made 10% of what I made, but he had way more fun than I did. Like he was going to art shows. He was visiting Spain and London and Asia. And I knew for a fact that he only had about $100, $200 to his name. And for some reason, that intrigued me. His life seemed much more exciting than mine, even though I was making the money, you know, I was living by the beach. That didn't satisfy me. It was something about that childlike feeling that I had when viewing art that I needed to be a part of. So I literally would drive to from San Diego to L.A. three times a week just to catch shows, just to, you know, see the street art. Because, you know, around that time, this is about 2011, 2012, um, where street art boom was going crazy in Los Angeles. So there was a new piece or three new pieces every day. You know, and that's when Retina was going crazy. Uh, Gregory Stiff, Mancho 1929. Mar. that's when he was going by, this means Mar. Shepard Ferry was going, so a lot of different arts. And also uh, Lab Art, Lab Art was the big gallery for street artists in Los Angeles at that time. So I was totally intrigued. I I never knew of this world. Mind you, I just, I come from Philly where it's all of universities, some of the best art schools in America, some of the best art museums in America, well, I come from a fine art appreciation with a little bit of roughness and graffiti. So I, this was the first time I actually kind of saw those merged on the street to where it was actual commentary coming out of the works besides someone's name or burner or throw up that you were used to when you get out in public art. So I just wanted to be a part of that. I would come up and I would just go to shows and talk with the artists and I always had my camera, so I felt that I had something to say about the pieces. So, as I'm photographing, I would write a little blurb, you know, write a little something here and there, and post it to Instagram. You know, I would write little things and post it. And the artist was like, "Dude, like I didn't even know you were there, or you knew this, you could even see this inside of my work." So I started to become friends with these artists, and you know, and now that I'm thinking about it, I've been friends with them over like ten years or something now, but. Becoming friends with these artists, becoming friends with uh, Isander at Labart, who was the uh, owner of Labart, I got a chance to really understand what was happening in the new contemporary art world, and I got inspired. One of my friends at the time, Paris, who hit me up because I had just literally gave my two weeks in Department of Defense and said, "You know what? I'm going to do something different." I-, I seen one of my coworkers, and he was working there for thirty years, and not that he wasn't happy. I mean, he was. He had family, had money, he was great. But I just looked and was like, I can't see myself doing this for thirty years. So I gotta get up and make a move. So Ares hit me up and was like, Hey bro, like I seen this building. Do you want to start a gallery together? And I was like, Cool, you know, because Ares and I had did a pop-up show down at Art Basel in twenty fourteen, I think it was, and a pop-up at one of his spaces that he had in Culver City. And they, they went really well. So we found that we worked together, started the new space, great idea, great enthusiasm. And then you realize that this is actually a business you know nothing about. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's it just jumped in, you know. And it was one of those things to where my passion was bigger than my brain. Because my only goal was I saw all of these amazing artists that deserve the change and i just literally wanted to give them a chance. And the same thing with Ares. He's seen artists that deserved the chance and we both had the idea that we want to, we want to give these artists a chance and we want to be able to be a steward of deciding what's good. You know, being able to say we think this is good. We think this artist deserves a chance. So we went for it. And it was a learning experience to say the to say the least, but It was the greatest learning experience because it was better than my Sotheby's education. It's better than working at someone else's gallery. I mean, you had to take the hits and everything for yourself. So, you know, not making sales for two to three months hurt. Artists abandoning the space for something a little bit more lucrative, which I understand now, but at that point, it hurt. But it also gave you an opportunity to understand how to manage an artist's career and how to manage a real business. And that was, in, I mean, imperative to everything I know today. A lot of what I know today comes from that time of being able to just screw up something and learn from a mentor or read or go back to school like I did at Sotheby's and Claremont and just get the mentorship from people that are already in the field. I mean, I constantly sing the praises of my finance teacher, Jay Pragg, because he literally taught me how to measure my success in the business down to a number and gave me formulas, taught me formulas to understand where I am in the process. That was, I think, some of the, I mean, I can't stress enough how great that information was for me as Not only as an entrepreneur or art business person, but as a curator, because one of the things you have to do is be able to measure where you are in the space. You know, you're measuring artworks, you're measuring the gallery dimensions, you're even measuring how the content lays up against each other. You know, so having those type of mentors and teachers alongside the mentors I got in my neighborhood, like my mother, uh, old basketball coach different elders in the neighborhood, even the graph artists that would try to teach me how to tag when my tags completely suck. Toy. <laughs> what a toy. No, I, yeah. I, I, and it's crazy because I look at when I'm working with Man One on stuff and I look at him doing stuff and I'm like, dude, I would have completely messed that line up. I would have completely you know, just buffed that up. So I get to appreciate just from experience, seeing people do things and understand how it's done. And I think all of that in a nutshell got me to a point of where I am just being able to appreciate, analyze, and be able to provide a solution. You know, and I think that's credit to my tech background as well, because you know, finding the problem and being able to deliver a solution will make you a very lucrative person. (laughs) You know, so doing that in the art world, I was hoping would do the same thing for me as well. And you know, so far it's been up and down, but the relationships have been the best part of this and i mean i've kept relationships with creatives since i was a kid and still reach out to them to this day to help me forward my career in the art
1: so you know thank you for that brother and i'm so i'm reminded of a saying cuz if you said something about how you know the actual doing right like you know having the gallery yeah. you know getting dirty you know getting your hands dirty maybe taught you even more than your education at Sotheby's or what have you. And I'm reminded of that old saying about, you know, the map is not the land, right? Like everybody's got a plan till they get punched yeah. in the face or whatever, right? Like, you know, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, the reality yeah. and the theory, very different. But take me back to Sotheby's because, you know, I don't know that we've ever had anybody on the podcast that actually graduated from that program. So take us back to how you ended up there and what that was like and what you got out of it and how that has helped uh, you know, provide a platform for you as well, because I'm very curious about what that did for you and the value that you gleaned from that.
0: Most definitely. So, when I first was deciding to give Sotheby's a try or think about attending, was after 2015, I think it was when we, the gallery, we first showed at Art Basel at Scope Art Fair. And when I was there for the VIP and install and first look, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, right? So there was language and things being talked about that I was kind of oblivious to. You know, so I'm looking like, whoa, you know what I mean? If I'm going to be managing artists' careers and I'm going to be a steward for, you know, these artists and working with collections and trying to call myself a serious art professional, I need to know what the conversation is. I need to know what's going on. I need to know what these terms mean and how they relate to what I'm doing. So I reached out to a friend, Erica Hiragami, who actually runs Curator Love, a curatorial platform. She's also a Sotheby's graduate. And she reached out to the director and put in a good word for me. And I had to do an interview with them. And I thought I did really well and got in. And when I got there, I felt like I was ready to take the next step. I didn't feel overwhelmed. I didn't feel like I didn't belong because the language that they were introducing, I was familiar with. I wasn't familiar with the advanced language of the fairs yet, but I was familiar with the introductory language of art business, art history, arts management. So I felt comfortable walking in and that was because I had already went through the fire (laughs) of owning, you know, that gallery. So a lot of that stuff, I was catching myself in class going, oh, that's what that was. Oh, this is what I should have did. Or asking questions from my own experience. Again, with Jay Pragg, you know, I would ask him, so if I have an artist and I sell these two things and I'm trying to get this amount out of it, how would I go about figuring that out? You know, so he would, Teach me different things about you know net present value, you know understanding if I should invest in a piece or put the money in a bank. You know it was understanding how these formulas could really get you to a understanding just literally blew me away from the door. And then when I got a chance to meet classmates that were from all walks of life, from different fields, you know everybody just wasn't in art. You know we had lawyers you know, you had accountants, one was a nurse, you know, but all of these careers tied in, you know, to art because every class and every subject, someone could relate something from their previous experience to something that was being discussed. So I found that very interesting to me because it made the art world more real world for me. And it also let me know that you no, it wasn't just the consensus of people that buy and support artists. They're regular people, quote unquote, regular people that support artists just as much as, you know, the big collectors do. And they enjoy art, maybe even more. And they know about art, maybe even more. So it was very exciting, exciting to just get to different subjects like arts, like the arts management, arts in the media, public art understanding estate management, being able to see a year in a report for a museum. Like I got a chance to see what the MoMA has to pay for. What are they paying in taxes? How do they you know, allocate their artwork and storage? You know, all of that was mind-blowingly exciting to me. So, you know, when I got through the first semester and taking these stories, experiences back to the gallery, and sharing them with my partner, sharing them with the artists, sharing them with collectors and those that would just come by and talk. I felt myself becoming not an authority, but someone who could share information. You know, and people started to look to me and say, hey, you know, now this dude, he has to know what he's talking about. He just got out of class. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's putting a little bit of credibility behind those words. Not that they didn't believe me before. But knowing that I'm going through the gauntlet of these things, of owning the gallery, of taking the courses, it made them kind of look at me differently and with a little bit more respect. And I appreciated that. And I think they appreciated that I went through that stuff to be able to stand there and talk with that confidence. So I'm truly appreciative of, you know, Sotheby's, you know, and being able to take the L.A. program and then go over for my final semester in London was even more of a eye opening experience and also allowed me to expand what I did internationally with other classmates that were from around the world. And also I got a chance being that London's museum museums are all free, I got a chance as they to should really be and, <laughs> as they shouldn't be everywhere. So I spent time every day at museums. I mean, looking at things from, of course, the exhibitions, but, you know, labeling, you know, how are they writing museum labels? How are they doing titles? What are they displaying pieces on? You know, Europe has a very, I think they're top of the food chain when it comes to presenting exhibitions. So it was a real learning experience for me. And then getting a chance to go to the Venice Biennale with my classmates and, my teacher, Pierre, he was from Paris, so he was he, oh he was very interested in having dialogue about the works, which helped me speak about the works and being able to go to the Biennale, having an assignment of writing a catalog essay about a piece, allowed me to take a simple work and go detail about it. What am I seeing? What is it making me feel? How is this experience with the art changing? Me in the moment. So, what I think Sotheby's did for me is it allowed me to slow down, to take my time with art, art business, think about how I could help the artwork and the artist a little bit more than I have been, how to be a little bit more careful in sales transactions, who I'm working with, because we learn about insurance, we learn about insurance fraud, we learn about forgeries we learn about those things too so being able to see both sides of the art world from professionals from both sides of the globe is just you know uh, education and experience I wish everyone in the art world had so I try to just relay what I've learned through whether that's through rants or my stories, Panels and podcasts with friends like this one, or just, you know, talks at exhibitions. You know, I love doing it. And I love when people have questions because I get to, you know, do my thing and talk about the cool stuff that I like to do. So it's it's very inspiring to me, brother.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's inspiring me to hear you tell that story too, because, you know, you hit on a couple of key things. And I think one of the most salient, you know, points you're making is having a common language. Yes. Right. Like, and that's the thing, right? It's like, you know, yeah, sure. There's credibility and a halo effect, you know, when you buy into a Mm -hmm. brand, so to speak, like Sotheby's, I mean, suddenly, you know, that legitimizes you, you know, in a way, you know, which is great. I mean, you know, like that's how the world works sometimes. Brands are shorthand for helping us navigate the world sometimes. But really what it's about is learning that language so that we can truly connect communicate and connect around whatever it is you know and there is a language to our world there there just is you know and like with yeah. any profession you know jargon and and cultural traditions <laughs> you know uh, best yeah. practices and and so getting that rigor yep. you know is so important and so it sounds like that's exactly the value you got out of it you know because i mean obviously the passion And the baseline was there in terms of your your upbringing and your education, what have you. Just you know, in terms of a enthusiast, but then to become, as you said, a serious professional, that's a different level. And going to school somewhere and and getting that knowledge, getting that base level, let alone Sotheby's, you know, it's just you know, it was a strategic
0: maneuver that you needed to elevate your career. Most definitely, and also I saw the next time I showed at. Or Basel or in Spoke, New York, the conversations were different. The dealers and collectors knew that I wasn't the same person from the year before. So, you know, I was what used to be a two-minute conversation high and by, now it turns into a half an hour, take my business card, let's have lunch. You know, because now that I'm on an equal playing field of understanding that language, now we can get on a equilibrium of discussing how we can help each other. Because, you know, that's one of the big misconceptions that I find with art dealers, curators, and actual artists, where many of them don't have a common language, because the the artist needs to understand what the curator is trying to do, the curator needs to understand what the dealer needs to do, and the dealer needs to understand what the artist is trying to do. So there's this triangle effect in the gallery system that really depends on communication. And, you know, the gallery doesn't open if the artist doesn't bring that works in those doors, you know, and you know the artist does not have a place to show if the gallery doesn't turn the lights on. So we all have, you know, an investment in each other. So once we understand that and get that common language, you see the best relationships come out. Because then you can relate on a person's level. You understand where they come from. And there's been plenty of times I've related, you know, an art deal to buying stuff at the supermarket. You know what I mean? Or, you know, being at the family reunion and not pissing off grandma, you know, like little things like that. Because those little things of etiquette, responsibility, respect, those moral values and all that play heavily still in the art world. It's not as, Raunchy and, you know, decadent and opulent as we like to see on the surface, there's still people in the art world who command respect and that respect, respect. And when you're a person that has that high level of respect for others, it gets you very far. And then you add knowledge, you know, and understanding on top of that, and you're pretty much unstoppable. You know? No.
1: That's it, brother. That's it. You know, one of the things that I love about, your journey and and everything you're talking about is that, you know, now I know why you're so articulate and why you're so eloquent, you know, I mean, yes, of course, there's a baseline of intelligence and and culture and sophistication that just you were born with, but then to then throw gas on that fire, so to speak, you know, with the education Mm -hmm. and with the learning of the, you know, industries, customs and norms and jargon and language. You know, that just is going to enhance your ability to tell your stories. Right. And this is a segue into what we want to talk about today, because, you know, not real art. I mean, we, we like to say that, you know, we exist to help artists tell their stories and promote their work. You know, simply, we like to say we love artists. We just love artists, you know, and, and we want to yes, elevate definitely. them and celebrate them. And one of the ways that I want to do that, right, is by finding those voices that are out mm-hmm. there that share our values, uh, that have a common, that share our common passion around artists and art and helping to celebrate and elevate artists and, and finding these people, these voices that are telling these stories for me is really part of the mission that we're on. And, you know, and I've been able to do that, you know, in a couple different ways. And, you know, and the reality is brother, like when I met you several years ago, all this whole time, I just been thinking like, Okay, man, we need Badir. We need Badir. Like, how do we get, you know, I want his voice. I want his storytelling. Because, you know, like that is, the, we, we obviously it just makes sense on so many levels. And so finally, yep. you know, the old saying, you know, nothing's more powerful than an idea whose time has come, you know. And, you know, and finally the planets aligned for us recently where where you and I were able to team up and say, okay, you know, let's finally do something Let's let's create a let's you know. And I said to you, I said, whatever you want to do, you know, you tell me. You know, like you tell me what you what stories you want to tell, because we'll help you know, platform it and amplify it and and get it out into the world. And so you know, so here we are. I mean, and and now you know that was a few months ago when we decided to team up and collaborate and you know and you got right to work man you did not waste any oh, time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think it was like 24 well, hours mean, later
0: you know you gave me the magic words brother you would like bro like create what you want to create and i think that's for someone like me for one it opens up a cabinet of curiosities and possibilities but it also it takes the pressure off you know it was one of those things and you know, thinking about all of this and going into, like, the theme of what I was thinking of, you know, because we love public art. And how I was looking at this, it was like, you know, growing up. I talk about in Philly and all this stuff. I thought the real art was in museums. So I thought public art was in, quote, not real art. You know what I mean? So it's like... I think about, like, how how many people think like that. You know what I mean? Like, to where that once it enters this building, it's now art. It wasn't art until it entered this venue. And I think now that people are starting to see large monuments that are dedicated to just the creativity. I mean, so many things in the cities now are just, you know, focused on... You know, sculptures that have nothing to do with the history of the city. They're just aesthetic, you know, and giving people opportunity to think about what it is, think about how it fits in that space, think about how their selfies look. It's one of those things where the public art has become the most engaging art in our society. So I wanted to take the idea of, like, what makes people engage the most? okay, public art. So how can we engage them in the public art? Let's tell the stories around it. Let's tell the history. How did it get there? Why does it belong here? Who created it? Most people that I've talked to have no ideas who created the public art in their neighborhood, let alone in their own city. They walk by and ride by murals and public sculptures and such beautiful pieces of Whatever it is out in the street, I have no idea who created that. So being able to uncover these artists and talk about the history, the materials, their thought process when bringing work from inside to outside, I thought would be much more exciting than just going to an art space and saying, "Look at this! This is cool." You know, how did it get there? What's the process of? You no, know, placing a seventy-foot sculpture in the middle of Wilshire Boulevard. You know how does it get there? What are some of the processes? How are murals put up? You know, as we've seen in some of the clips, we know in LA that it's done just all paint. You know, murals, spray paint, goes up there, regular paint. But in places like Philadelphia, there's other techniques because of weather and other things. So being able to see how the process changes from coast to coast, I thought would be very interesting for the viewer, and also could allow a lot of um, arts organizations to take a different approach to their mural making, or allow brands and businesses to see that, hey, you don't have to always destroy a wall to have a mural. So seeing the possibilities of public art was exciting to me with this project, and just Also, seeing your face when going over the stuff, brother, just was like, oh, yeah, now I know this is exactly where we need to be because we're both looking at it like, yeah, this is is what we need. This is what we need to see. And I'm going to get a little bit more footage today from a few things and just having that in mind of like, okay, I'm not the curator right now. I'm not the filmmaker. I'm the art appreciator. What do I want to see? What questions do I have? I mean, even when I'm out there, I'm usually filming by myself. So people will come by and say, hey dude, what are you doing? So I am like, hey, you know, I'm I'm filming this art piece. Did you know this art piece was made by such and such and such, or made out of such and such? And they're like, Are you serious, dude? And then they end up they end up sitting there with me for five minutes listening to me talk to the camera. And, you know, I end up meeting some very cool people who would never stop and talk in the museum, who would never stop and talking to a gallery because they feel that they might not have anything important to say or what they say might not be as educational as someone who frequents a gallery or a museum. So to see their eyes and their questions light up makes that even cooler because I know that's my target audience. So when they see this, those people that are multiplied by know, people on YouTube or Instagram, it's going to really hit folks that really need to see it. And then you'll see folks going out in public, you know, doing like they did on Get Up to the Greek with the furry wall and they're feeling everything and they're touching. But That engagement is at its highest level at that point. So then they come into the galleries and museums with questions. Well, isn't this the same artist that did the mural on this block? Isn't this the same artist that did the sculpture in NetBlog? Isn't this the same artist that was on Not Real Art Podcast? Isn't that the artist that won the grant? You know, like they're able to identify. Again, we talk about that, that common language. They're able to get on the same playing field to have a conversation that progresses to everyone. So, so that's what I'm excited about. Man, man, I'm excited.
1: <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. And I, and you're right. I got a, You gave me a sneak peek the other day and man, I just, I got so excited because I mean, you know, listen, I, you're right. I, I, you know, when, in my experience, right. When you are able to associate with tigers, cause you know, you're kind of a, metaphorically speaking, you're a tiger, my friend, you know, yes, you, don't, you don't, you don't, you don't try to cage a tiger. You know what I mean? You you said that you, you let that tiger be a tiger. And I was just like, you know what? Like, but Deer's down to work and collaborate and do something with, with not real art. Like, man, I just want you to do you and be you and go out and you tell me, you know, the story that I need to hear or that you want to tell me and that you think I need to hear. And I think that's what you're doing. Right. And that's what we're we, I think that's why our readers and our audience get excited is because they're about to learn something that is not just relevant, but surprising and delightful and, un- yes. and unexpected, yes. you know?
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, that's indicative of the not real art and art of reality brands. I mean, like, I could always check on not real art and see a new artist, you know, on the podcast episode or when it's time for grants. You know, I love going over, it. I mean, when I was at art Share, I think, what, three artists from the not real art grant that year that I did was in the show? I mean, the works were just amazing you know and it just not only were the works the execution good but the story behind them you know and i realized i was like man there's a lot of artists out here with something very important to say and they've executed the works that you know required the attention of a curator or a gallerist to give them that moment and i was just honored that uh you know i was selected to just even overlook you know, these works, because they were, they were so good. And I was like, okay, I have to include them in something like these are, these are too good. Well, and and And, I I was
1: so grateful that you did that too, because I mean, that's part of what, Right, we want artists to feel like when they come into our orbit, yes. whether they win our grants or not, that they find themselves in a world, in a community, in an orbit that is elevating them and giving them opportunities, and you know, yep. beyond what maybe they expected as well. And the networking por- portion too. It's like no, but nobody likes the word networking. I mean, you know, like nobody wants to really network, <laughs> you know. But at the end of the day, when you start meeting people that you share your values or you share your passions, and it's like the networking happens organically, right? And it's like oh. Oh yeah. wait a minute! Do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And the opportunities start popping up, you know. And that's why I was just so grateful, man, that you then, after you know, reviewing all those amazing artists and helping us identify our winners, that you then took it one step further and said, "Hey guys, you know, I'm doing the show. Please come uh, participate." You know.
0: Yeah, I mean, because I wanted to provide a win, you know, for all of them. You know, we know that only one person can win in different things, and there's certain requirements that are needed, but. I was in a situation to help multiple people. So I was like, you know what? Like these artists deserve, you know, and their works were, I mean, like right on time for what the show was about, right on time for seeing the right materials and how they just impacted. When I saw them, they, they really sat with me. And that for me was like, whoa. You know what I mean? These deserve to be seen, even if, you know, they don't win. They deserve still to be seen. And I think that's what, you know, I love about Not Real Artists, that you guys give opportunities to be seen. You know, like that's important to an artist, you know, to a filmmaker, to a curator, to a gallerist, you know, an opportunity. You know, and we know in L.A., opportunities are, you know, slim. you know, for artists and creators in this art world but we have to give you know blessings and thanks for those that give the opportunities because they're really 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 the mvps because they're providing a different level of excitement possibility just confidence you know in these artists that are out here because this is a very tough market you know we're not in you know a rural town in the Midwest, and I'm not getting any rural towns in the Midwest, but the competition is very, very deep here. And you don't always have the opportunity to get in front of everyone's face to show what you can do. So when you have the opportunity or when they have the opportunity, especially to get in front of someone like me who had the opportunity to show... I'm going to let it go. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean?
1: I'm yeah. going to let them have it. You know? <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, it, you hit the nail on the head, man, because, you know, it's like having been, you know, I got my start as a graphic designer working in commercial art back in 1988. Okay. So over a long, over three, four decades or whatever it is now, you know, the reality is, is I've had the chance to work with a lot of artists, you know, commercial artists mm-hmm. and contemporary artists, you know, and the one thing that I noticed because, you know, obviously art world and artists are not a monolithic community. That's why we love them, right? They're idiosyncratic, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're, they're very unique individuals. But the one kind of thing, though, if there is something that most artists, I think, agree about most of the time is in my experience, is that, you know, most artists would agree that they really want and need help with exposure, they want to need yeah. help amplifying their story and amplifying their work. You know, just from a pure practical business standpoint, I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, I would argue one of the reasons why artists struggle is because the art world as we know it isn't hugely fragmented and inefficient. You know, and yep. what you have is you have one business model, a.k.a. the White Cube Gallery business model that doesn't serve 99 percent of artists. OK. Yeah. And, and by the way, 99.9 percent of artists. Right. No, yeah. So, so OK, that's cool. Like, I mean, you know, the, the blue chip first world of art, like they got their thing going on. That's great. You know, they're fine you know, but what can we do, you know, to the other, for the other 99.9% of artists? Like, it's ironic that the art world seems to to really be devoid of innovation, you know, in in a lot of ways, right? Like let's innovate people, let's create some new business models. And so for me, you know, when I thought about Because my passion really is helping artists. I I just love, because I love artists, I wanna help them. And when I was saying, okay, where can I add the most value and how, you know, what do artists really want, need, whether they realize it or not, is this idea of exposure and amplification and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and when we decided to launch Not Real Art, I mean, man, the name Not Real Art was very intentional, very intentional. Mm -hmm. It's been hilarious to like observe over the last four years, you know, like the, how people react to the name. It's like good art, right? Like at the end of the day, like good art is probably gonna prove, you might love it, you might hate it, but it's gonna make you feel something. And you know, for me, you know, art that doesn't make you feel anything. Okay, maybe that's a different conversation, but with the name, not real art, man, I knew that it was gonna make people feel. And by the way, it was sort of, it worked perfectly because artists get the joke immediately. You know, most artists, they know we're for them. They, they, oh, you see me. You know, because because they understand that we understand their struggle, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, the name, the name, not real art, right? It's a, it's a critique and a commentary on the legitimacy, right, of the art world. Who's to say what is or isn't art, or who's to say what is it isn't exactly. real art, right? And it's been hilarious because you know, like galleries, I like the many conversation galleries and serious galleries and patrons, they say to me, they go, "Not real art." I I don't get it. Like we're about real art. I'm like- <laughs> Oh I guess that's it's okay. The, and
0: that's the thing right there. Because it's like that's at surface level. It's like how can you not see what that is? And that's why like lately I've been in favor of a lot of artists run spaces. Because for one, it gives them that same road to perdition, you know, in a sense that I had to where it's like you get to learn how a gallery is run, you get to have responsibility of the bills, responsibility of the shows and responsibility of the success and also responsibility of the failures, you know, and I think that's great for artists careers, you know, to know how to manage a show, how to, you know, ship works, how works are supposed to come shipped to you, how to deal with collectors that do the runaround because a lot of times they don't believe curators or dealers when we tell them this, collector just up and disappeared. So sometimes they might need to just feel that, you know, feel the ghosting a bit to understand like, oh, maybe this does happen. Maybe maybe it's not as easy to just, you know, sell my art, sell my art. Because you have people that come in and anytime you put a prefix before art, someone's, you know, want to be, you know, have their, you know, panties in a bunch in a sense, you know, like, because you can say, fine art. People were like, "Well, what does that mean? Are you saying my work's not fine?" It's like, no, you know, like I'm not saying that. That's just what this category of art is called. But with artists run galleries and spaces, it gives them the opportunity to, dev- to find them for them. You know, if you're calling your stuff contemporary works or cubism or new uh, neo-expressionist art, you can, because this is your space and these are your contemporaries. This is what you want to show, you know, so like I'm a huge fan of art, you know, growing up or changing itself in that way. I've been to a few, you know, artist run spaces and love them. You know, there's a different feeling, you know, for one, when when you walk in, everyone says hi because, you know, they know what it feels like to walk in a gallery and not have anyone just welcome you. You know, so that's a huge change. And one of the things that I made sure I did at my space was, you know, welcome people. You know, if this is a potential client or someone that you want to support your space, why not show them the utmost respect? You know, that's one of the things that we have to lead with in the art world that I think is missing is just the respect as, you know, human beings. Like this is a person right here that's interested and came into your space to admire what you have. You know, at least show them the respect to listen, answer any questions they may have and give them the information they need to make a decision.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just say, isn't it ironic, right, that a professional working in the visual arts can't see me in their gallery? Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, here I am. Like, am I invisible? <laughs> Wait, I thought you were supposed to like, be able to, like, you know, visualize and see things. You know, oh, you don't yeah, see but, me.
0: OK. <laughs> but it's so funny because those are the behaviors of the art world. And it's like, it's been trained in a lot of the attendants and a lot of the, the front desk gallery helpers, workers, employees. I don't know what the proper term for that is these days, but you know, it's a savior energy for the folks that are going to buy stuff that you know, they're going to buy stuff. You know, I think a lot of the quote unquote blue chip galleries miss a sale. Maybe, maybe they're not even looking for the sale. You know, maybe they already have where the world's going, but Mid-tier and emerging galleries can't afford to do that. Exactly. But I mean, you know, like part of
1: what it is is, right, missing an opportunity to nurture future buyers, right? And by the way, not perceiving your gallery as an educational institution as well, right? So, like, because, like, really what it is is, you know, people are more, you know, as consumers, right, we educate ourselves around that car we want to lease, or that school we want to go to, or we educate ourselves about that mortgage for that house that we might want to buy, or, or the healthcare insurance yeah. that we can't afford, <laughs> you know, like, like we're educating <laughs> yeah, ourselves yeah. as consumers. And, you know, and so galleries, when somebody walks in, whether they're going to buy anything or not, that's an opportunity to educate and enlighten. Yes. And, and, you know, and so it's pretty like uh, one dimensional, pretty simplistic, pretty, pretty sad that, you know, maybe they don't seize that moment to be able to convert, you know, someone mm-hmm. or, or, or here's a word that, you know, groom someone, you know, it's like, let's nurture, right? Let's plant some seeds,
0: you know? And the one thing I found that was really beneficial for me in that case was, Just because they're not buying anything from the artist or the gallery that day, it doesn't mean that they're not ever going to do it. I mean, I've had someone come to us three to four months after we showed at Basel and say, hey, do you still have the piece from that artist? We would love to get it. And, you know, you got to give your collectors time to become a millionaire.
1: That's right.
0: And by the way, just because that person that walked in was wearing Gucci
1: Doesn't mean they got a dime, you know what I mean? So, so like, like beware of the person that walks in looking a little bit homeless, because that's the billionaire that, (laughs) or the millionaire that you are going to your prejudice and your bias and your bullshit mentality is going
0: to overlook. You know? Oh yeah, and I learned that early, just from being at Basel again. You mentioned that, and those are some of the conversations and the language you had to learn too. And it's like you there and like. You think about it, like when you're there, you're used to L.A., you know, you see people come up in their finest, you know, Sunday's best or their favorite Hollywood event best. And then you look at Miami and you're like, of course, they're coming in T-shirts and shorts and flip flops. This is Miami, dude. (laughs) You get as hell down here. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, So it's like you have to get out of that mentality of everything is just L.A. A lot of dealers, especially Los Angeles-based galleries, we're under or behind the LA fence or the New York fence or the London fence, you know, something like that. But when you get out there, you realize some of the biggest collectors are from like Texas and Oklahoma and, you know, DC and Spain and Hong Kong. They're not in your traditional art cities. So it's like, I love when someone that is not from America, understands the artists that I'm showing or seen my gallery or hits me up on Instagram and say, hey, dude, I love what you do because it gives me a chance to learn what they do. What's happening in your country that I should know about? What artists are you looking at that maybe I'm not showing, that maybe I haven't seen, that maybe I should know? I get so many good referrals from just quote unquote, random people and random art lovers. They're like, yo, you should check out this artist. If you like this one, you'll really like this. And it's literally some artists that could be in a small town in Germany that's making amazing work, but will never reach anybody. That's
1: right, brother. You know what? It's so funny because I knew this was going to happen. I literally (laughs) knew it because we have been talking for 57 minutes. It feels like five (laughs) seconds. It feels like five seconds. I knew this was going to happen. It's always. And I mean, we could do this for three more hours, I know. And we will do it more and more and more. But I tell you what, you know, as unfortunately, as we got to wrap up here, I want to just take a couple minutes though and level set again around this amazing video series that you're creating, for NotRealArt.com. Yes. and so you've got a series of videos where you're taking on public art. What is public art? What does it mean? Its importance, its value. What are the what are the biases? What are the conceptions? What are the misconceptions? You know all that stuff, mm-hmm. and you're and you're looking at it from different geographic regions, and like how does environment and how does geography shape public art too? In terms of the materials we use, in terms of our yep. approaches, you know, can we? You know, we can't work in. 20 below you know (laughs) or whatever right so what's that mean you know and uh, it's not always sunny in LA we're in LA right so we can make public art year-round right so anyway so you've got this incredible series that's coming out before we go just break it down for us really specifically like let's get people excited about what's coming at them you know episode one episode two episode three break it down for us please
0: oh yeah so episode one Being that this was the most recent public art event in LA, I go to talk about Desert X, which is, for those that don't know, Desert X is a beautiful installation of a, I should say, a a group of artists not working together, but working for the same idea of putting public art pieces in the desert. And it's just amazing. I mean, they are just remote locations and some beautiful, large-scale works that really challenge the notion of public art, you know, like one of the things we joke about is, if is it public art if there's no public around, you know, so like if you're in the middle of the desert and you only see two to three people a day, is it still public art, you know, and then I had a chance to, you know, visit Europe and go back to Sotheby's and see the, the town, but also use the footage and also friends and artists from around to look at the public art in London, you know. From one of the artists, uh, Thomas Price, who's a part of his work a part of the episode about bringing public art from inside outside and outside inside. We get to talk about his work also in London as it it's street art with a, another artist named Dref, who's also a friend, an amazing street artist. And then we head over to Philly and talk about public art markers and murals. How do markers inform us about the public art that we're around? And the marker itself can be a public art because it contains the history, it contains details, it contains data, and they also look beautiful as far as the aesthetics inside of a city. And also murals, how do they tell the story of a city? Are they there for just aesthetics or are they really the journal or the diary for a city? And one of the muralists, a good friend of mine, gave Tiburino, whose family, the Tiburino family, is a historic arts family in Philadelphia, who has their own museum, who's been creating public artworks forever, and they're part of like just over 50 murals in the Philadelphia area alone. I'm also going to take a trip out to Bombay Beach. Most people don't know what Bombay Beach is, but I'm excited to go just explore the art of the ruins, I like to call it. It reminds me of uh, Noah Purifoy's Desert Art Museum, which I will be featuring in a series as well because it's one of my favorite places. But it's these places that are just really remote where artwork goes to, people say go to die, but I think it goes to live out a long life because we know that public art in major cities has an end date where they're gonna change it, where things are gonna be shuffled around to give other artists an opportunity but these works, you see them actually evolve with the elements, you see them erode with the elements. And I think that's a really key part of public art that we mostly don't get to see because as the public art erodes and things, it changes, but it also brings along the history. I mean, we think about, I'm referencing Philadelphia Museum of Art and these other museums, we think about the patina on the sculptures outside of these museums they've had time to live outside. They've had time to live with the elements to where they've taken a new form. So I want to explore with all of these type of things from materials to people to process. And I think with this series, we're going to be able to touch on a good amount of it and I'm going to make sure of it. So... I'm excited. I'm excited, brother.
1: I really am. Me too. This is the first step in a long journey. I mean, no, I can't yes, uh, as, sure. stoked as, as, as stoked as I am about this first, shall we call it, you know, body of work that you're doing for us. You know, I'm already stoked about the next body of work that I don't even know what you're gonna <laughs> do, but it's gonna be fantastic. And I tell you what, man, you're just, you know, you're such a gift, and I'm so grateful for you. And you know, you you make Thank us you, all bro. better, and you class up the joint. God knows we need that. And I just I look forward to our future together, brother, because our present is just beautiful. And I'm so grateful.
0: Same for you. here, brother. And I'm totally appreciative. And I just want to let the audience out there know that you know I'm always thankful for just the energy that Scott brings. And he gets me excited about things. And I'm a person that's I'm very reciprocal with energy. And if you're excited to build, it makes me two times excited to build, three times, four times even. You know, because that excitement gives me motivation because I like to show the work. I like to show, like, look what I found, dude. Like, look at this. That collaboration makes the project worth it. And I'm just excited to continue that along, brother.
1: Right on brother. Well, we're going to keep it rolling. And I tell you oh, what, yeah. you are just a dear, dear friend. And and thank you so much for coming on this, this early morning, by the way, like, like, you know, like, well, I've been, I got two kids under 10. So, you know, I've been up since like six, but
0: you know, I haven't I, been asleep yet.
1: <laughs> See, you've been up nah. all night. See, I used to yeah, be you. Up, I, I used to be you. I was like, Oh, sun's coming up. I guess I got to go home.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was, I was thinking about taking a nap but like, Five thirty, just to be a little bit, you know, bright eyed and bushy tail. But I was like, I'm already up. I might as well just start reading some articles. You know what I mean? And then I got up and opened the window, and the lights started coming through. So I was like, I'll get, I'll get some rest later. So I know probably around like maybe two, three o'clock, I'm a crash.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, man. Exactly. Well, you know, when I was coming up, people used to say, oh, you never sleep. I'm like, yeah, I'll get plenty of sleep when I'm dead. And then I realized, <laughs> yeah. like, man, if I kept living like that, I might be dead a lot sooner you than I think. <laughs> <sooner. Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's uh, the truth. Uh, Brother Badir, man, much love. Thank you so much for coming through. And, you know, more to come, people. Stay tuned because yes, we got sir. nothing but goodness and uh, love coming your way. So you're going to be uh, just enlightened and inspired and bigger as a result oh, yeah. of it.
0: You're going to get that not real art, but you're definitely going to get some real love.
1: <laughs> <It's>, it, <laughs> two sides of the same coin as far as I'm concerned. And, yes, uh, sir. But dear McCleary, thank you, brother. You have a beautiful day.
0: You too, brother. Thank you so much for having me. Peace. Peace.
1: Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Pajot and Desi DeLauro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.